0: Classic Barossa and family, you know. Yeah. You look at the the history of the Barossa. One of the great ways to start looking into the Barossa is on Facebook, and there's a page called Lost Barossa. So you just get into Facebook and search Lost Barossa. Now this was a Four Corners television show in 1962, which also happens to be one of the great vintages of Australian wine. And they've travelled around the Barossa. They're chatting to. They go to the the Barossa Men's Choir. Who are all in their ties and suits? They're singing Ein Deutsch. They're singing in German, in Barossa Deutsch, which is its own little language. Right. Um, they go to the priests, who are the Lutherans, of course, who were you know pumping out of Prussia back in the day because they were being basically persecuted for their religion, and they came over and they started with the South Australian Company because you know the South Australians will tell you there was no convict labour in South Australia, not strictly true. But we'll let them have that one. They do hang their head yeah. on it. Well, they lot. love it, don't they? <laughs> they love talking about that. But when Captain Hahn brought them over on the Zebra in the 1830s or whatever it was, and and they settled, and you've got your you know your shields and your sharkies and your koleskies and your henschgies mm. and all those people. Um, uh, Johan Gramp, 1847. You know, there's a great a great wine. I think one of the great wines of the Barossa, which is from the Muraroo Vineyard, planted in 1847 by a lady called Anne Jacob, whose husband William. Um, he surveyed the creek there, as in Jacobs Creek, as in what that was named after in Lindock. So, yeah, great German tradition. But if you watch that video on Los Perosa, eventually they talked to, to Colin Gramp and they talk to... Um Cyril Henschke and, you know, Mm. that's the old school. They're talking the language like this and, yeah, it's just... And they're talking about these new markets opening up in the 60s in Asia and the UK. And if you think about Australian wine history, that's pioneering gear. 1960s exporting wine. Pretty amazing stuff, really.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, We uh, we actually didn't notice a question that came through when we were talking with Damien. So I'm going to throw this at either you or Jill. Um, It's from Christopher who... um, has asked, wanted us to ask Damien about uh, the differences in the terroir of the different um, vineyards. Can can you picture, you know, he was Marananga Uh, and...
0: I can make that pretty easy. If you think of the Barossa, like if you just hold your hand out, right, um, up in front of your face and you've got your fingers going north-south, you know, think about sort of from your ring finger to To your thumb on your right hand is basically the Brosser Valley floor, mm-hmm. and the further north you get, the hotter it gets, and the further south you get, the cooler it is. Right, and then if you look at your sort of little finger across over on the other side of your hand, there that would be the Eden Valley, which gets yeah. up to a sort of six, seven hundred metres above sea level. The highest point is Kaiserstall, right. So, as I said, Marananga in that sort of northwestern and you're getting a lot of hot winds coming across the Nullarbor. You're getting, you know, there's a bit of ironstone in the dirt, so you tend to get a bit of that more peaty kind of thing. As you're heading up into the Eden Valley on the eastern side, you get more of that sort of clay-type dirt, which is like that cricket pitch kind of dirt. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the further south, you get places like Lindock and further south than that get significantly cooler. So it's that, that, that little temperature variation that that changes things a lot. And, of course, there's... Sub regions within sub regions of the Barossa as well. So, you know, if you're thinking about those those classic northwestern vineyards, um, you know, you've got some brilliant Nuri and Marananga and all those different sub regions produce different kinds of wines. And that's the great thing about. You know, if you're expressing those little bits of dirt, now that's a great way to make wine. You've got a a couple of new kind of kids on the block in there too, you know, your Sammy and your Standish wines where they're doing things a little differently. I loved hearing Damien talk actually about the fact that he's doing amphora wines and some skinsy stuff because the Barossa tended to be a little traditional and they wouldn't let him get away with that in a million years. So these kind of young guys who've grown up on these old vineyards, they can kind of do what they like now, uh, which Mm. I think is brilliant.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's it's the generational change, possibly, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Um, um, Jill, uh, I, was, I was letting Richo know that you um, that you work with accolade wines, and he he was uh, his history and we haven't really gone into your history yet, but but you were for a fair while with Pernod Ricard. So sure. there's a fair bit of crossover between the two. I'm sure you two would know, it, know people.
0: We uh, probably crossed paths somewhere along the lines there, but I, I was working for Pernod Ricard in, in Northern Europe. So yeah. my job was as a brand ambassador, travelling around the basically the monopoly market countries, hosting wine tastings. I'd go to Provine every year and pour wine for Pernod. Uh, that's where I got all my sort of, Barossa knowledge I suppose from the the Jacobs Creek side of things you know because they've been around as I said since you know 1847 as a business if you think about when Johan Grant planted those vineyards and you know let's talk about the elephant in the room of businesses like Treasury and Accolade and Perno. like they're important for the Australian wine industry when they're going well the industry's going really well right. I work for Dan Murphy's, so, you know, we used to be Dirty Dan's. So I'd like to think that I'm trying to change it back to sort of Uncle Dan's, being a wine merchant, giving giving face-to-face customer service, really, you know, picking up on those traditional customers, bringing new ones in via new platforms a la Instagram and that sort of thing as well. But the bottom line is, like, we've got to keep this industry going and we're all in it together. Mm. That's the way I think about yeah. it, you know. We're, we're, we're competitors commercially, but that's not how I think about it, you know. I like the big ones, the small ones, everything in between do your own thing, swim in your own line, put your arm around your competitor and say let's get through it together because it's been pretty tough over the last couple of years really, yeah.
2: isn't it? Oh, look, it's, it's a community thing and um, that's something that often comes up in our in our um, chats and in the interviews is that people work together and it doesn't matter what region you're in, you know, there's a wonderful community spirit because as you say, you know, w- when things are good, that that's great. When things aren't so great, you, know, you, you band together and you support, but ultimately you're all working together for the same thing and that's to produce magnificent wine and to put our beautiful wines on the map internationally. It's 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 a conglomerate thing together and um and I love that community spirit that's there.
0: Absolutely. And and let's also talk about the different range of customers that we that we look at servicing, right? So 95% of people that walk into my store, they don't know what a Domaine, Loire, Chambetan, Clo de Bez is. They don't give a crap. It's not about that for them. They're like, mate, it's Saturday. I'm having mates around for a barbecue. I got 20 bucks to spend. Yeah. You know, I normally drink Pepper Jack. What should I be drinking that's similar but a little bit different, right? So the, the way I think about it is if someone comes into my store and they ask for something very specific, it'd be like me going to Macca's and saying, hey, listen, I want a Big Mac. And they go, well, have you tried steak tartare? No, mate, I'm here for a Big Mac, you know what I mean? <laughs> I didn't ask for a steak tartare. So if yeah. you come into my store and you say, I want Pepper Jack Shiraz, I'm like, dude, no worries, here it is. But if you say, hey, listen, this is what I normally drink and I want to try something a little different, well, that's when I can handball you onto something else, create that conversation. Mm. Hey, follow me on Instagram, little plug here, Dan Murphy's underscore Richard. Uh, or here's my business card, let's, let's, let's start a conversation, you know. Uh, and, and look, we don't get it right. Jewel will know this. We don't get it right all of the time. You can't because the bottom line is we all have different tastes. I I have a little tagline that I often say to people and it's basically like whatever makes you happy makes me happy, right? So same with music. So if you're sitting on a hill drinking goon, listening to Justin Bieber you got a smile on your face. I'm happy for you, bro. Like, that's a good thing. If you want to sort of get – I saw we were listening to OK Computer there before, right? So, so Radiohead, you want to talk about some Radiohead wines, well, let's let's talk about something a bit different, something a bit more interesting. And, you know, I was lucky enough when I was in London a few years ago on the anniversary of the record to, to put together a whole music and beverage tasting with the whole album, OK Computer. Like you – you basically need to do this at this time and and curating that. And I find that a really fascinating thing too, but not everyone's into Radiohead, man. (laughs) Most people don't even (laughs) (laughs) like Radiohead. Look, I know. Two out of three presenters here. Yeah, and it's cool. You don't have to be into Radiohead. You don't have to be into natty wines. You don't have to be into whatever the next great thing is in wine, you know. As long as you're walking out with a smile on your face. And, and I like think whatever.
1: as long as you're open to try these things, and if you try it and you don't like it, then you don't go back to it. But yeah. you can't say, I don't like it, without trying it. Correct. Because that's ignorant. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well,
0: yeah, and it, that, that conversation's a tough one to have. So it's kind of like running. I, my first gig in wine was running the Cellador and the being the sommelier at the restaurant at Tarawarra. Uh, so, you know, lucked out there. Imagine that, going to work for the Beesons, one of the great restaurants in the Yarra mm. Valley, you know, pioneering vineyards, planned in the 80s, like super-duper high-quality Chardonnay in particular. Great
2: Chardonnay. Oh, yeah. Oh, Claire, yeah.
0: Claire and Amac are absolute guns there. Mm. And, and I was lucky to do vintage there as well. But... People would walk in and we actually made a really nice Sauvignon Blanc as well, you know. Oh, no, no, I don't drink Sauvignon Blanc. I do to drink Chardonnay. Or the other way around. Oh, Chardonnay is all oaky and buttery. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, some Chardonnays are. But like, hey, why don't we just get – let's take away the label. Let's not think about preconceptions. So one of the great opportunities that I get to do at Uncle Dan's in Alphington is to run masterclasses, right? And it's like let's take a theme. Let's take something really easy. So let's take – Cabernet Sauvignon, to blend or not to blend. So most people walk in, I want a, I want a straight Cabernet Sauvignon. Cool, no worries. But they don't realise that 15% of that wine could be anything from anywhere from any time, right? Yeah. So let's take four regions. Let's take Coonawarra, let's take Margaret River, let's take Yarra and let's take you know, Bordeaux. I'm going to pour out two wines next to each other blind not to make it hard for you, but just to take away the concept. One's going to be straight Cabernet, one's going to be a Cab Merlot. Now let's just firstly talk about which one do you like and why, and then let's see if you guys can pick which is the Cab and which is the blend. Because the bottom line is it doesn't matter. Like, mm. if you like it, you like it. <clears throat> so don't, don't come in with, try not to come in with preconceptions, but we'll help you out. Whatever you need, of course, in the wine industry we'll give it but, to you.
1: Uh, Cabernet is a, a classic example where <clears throat> some regions, it needs an addition of something else because it Actually, does like Margaret River particularly? You know, they talk about this donut effect that the Merlot fills in. So, so therefore, it's it's actually, you know, it's it's performing an actual vital role.
0: Uh, Oh, completely. And let's like have a little nod to France, where Cabernet is from in Bordeaux. They put the Merlot in for a reason, so that gives us an opportunity in Australia to do our own thing, which we did. So, mm. hence the iconic claret blend from Australia, Cab Shiraz, you know, bin three eight nine sort of style stuff, because the Shiraz kind of, well, or Shiraz if you're from South Australia, fills in that mid palate. You know, Merlot is a beautiful thing to add to Cabernet, as you say, because it gives it plushness and it's not all about the front and the sides. Cabernet needs time, like anything, to sort of unwind and let itself unfurl. But yet, yet in Coonawarra, in they tend to still use 100% Cabernet. So, mm. yeah, regional, stylistic, you know, expectations, they all play a role in the kinds of wines that we make.
2: Mm. Yeah, we actually had... Um uh, we we had a bit of a theme around Merlot, based on International Merlot Day, just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it was actually really it was really interesting to have you know basically two hours talking about this great that you know people don't really talk about that much or you know really just consider it's just a blend, but it was really interesting to get into it. Now the pair between a Merlot and the Cabernet is a perfect match made in heaven. And um, Simon just mentioned the donut effect, and um and that is you know they they both there's a complement between the two that. It's kind of rare to, to beat between other varietals, um. You know, when you when you can have a standalone cab sauv like when you is from Coonawarra, they're absolutely magnificent, and and they pack a punch. But they're also that quite that high alcohol percentage, whereas the merlot kind of softens it and brings that alcohol percentage down a bit which is actually which is kind of the trend of what consumers are wanting now anyway going forward which I'm, I'm guessing you're you see a lot of this with your customers that come into the store the sort of questions they have and 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 the sort of things that they're looking for are you are you seeing these sort of trends
0: yeah it's that's a really interesting point that you make because having you know I was lucky enough to go to the 2012 Claret MW tasting in London which was it was in 2014, but all of the 2012 red Bordeaux's, uh, 185 of them we tasted, right? And I'm seeing a trend in Bordeaux, particularly on the right bank, which I didn't expect, you know, for those Merlots and those Merlot-Franc blends, for the alcohol to be up around 14.5%, 15%. Now, in the, back in the day, we would have said, oh, that's the Parker effect or whatever. But uh, but I do see uh, I do see a trend towards lighter, skinnier... More savoury, less oak affected types of wines blend. So you guys, this is a nice way to sort of talk about it because you started the show talking about the Henri Fessy Beaujolais village, right? So Beaujolais, so Gamay is like Pinot Noir's cool cousin, but it doesn't it's it doesn't need too much oak. You know, you just want to have a little skeleton to hold things together. So I sort of feel like oak is like is like a skeleton like I'm glad you've got it but I don't want to see it you know what I mean so these sort of lighter more easygoing blends I see a massive trend in however you still got your traditionalists to come in and say oh, hey listen I'm old school I want a big rich oaky dark inky Barossa Shiraz and I want a big buttery oaky Chardonnay and that's cool like there's no problem with that at all but I just sort of see trending particularly in younger demographics like they they're actually coming out of wine and going into spirits. We're losing customers from the wine industry into the spirits. Now, COVID probably didn't help it. I probably shouldn't mention the C word, but you know, Friday night Zoom was like everyone making their own cocktails, right? So how do we get those mm-hmm. guys back in? So part of that is Pet, pet Nats and Method Ancestral wines and Skinzy and Cool and this and that too. But at some point we've got to convert them across to, in inverted commas, more regular kinds of wines. And I think that the wine industry needs to to look at those trends and say, hey, let's make better wines with more regionality that can be still fun and let's not bugger around with too much oak. And you know, I see a trend obviously in Europe where the, there's been this more bistro style thing going on for years anyway That's really permeated its way into Australia. So, yeah, we mentioned Tim Shan before with his Gamay, right? But the second label for Punt Road is called Airlie Bank. Now, they're Pinot Noir. Yeah, Yeah, like it's handpicked still, but he just jams it into giant goon bags and ferments it a whole bunch and, and, and wild yeast and then no oak. Just boom, smash it into a bottle. The 2021, we've had for three months, it's now the number one selling pin on wire in My Damn Murphys. We sell five or six dozen a week because it's bloody awesome to drink. And what sort of money? 20 bucks. Yeah, right. It's a lobster, you know. So he also does, you know, some some blends for vintage sellers, I know, and this sort of stuff. So smart businesses are looking at those interesting ways to pull a few more consumers across into the wine segment because we're losing them. Mm.
2: So there's also there it's, it's it is a generational thing i mean you can see that the younger generation they're very fitness focused and so of course you're beginning to see the um the the demand for these low alcohol or no alcohol wines and spirits and you can, you can get loads of great gins that are completely alcohol free um and that is very much based on this the, the mindfulness of drinking which is a great thing but it is actually a Big, well, it's it it is it is a bit of an obstacle for the wine industry because you know how do you, how do you educate people who have already started going in a completely different trajectory, and um, I mean you mentioned there we're always going to have people who love their big heavy red sixteen point five percent they want to put them down for ten years and pull them out later, but there really is a lot of people just wanting to able to drink wine right now as well. So we need to have red wines that can actually just, they're in the bottle for a year but they're drinking beautifully. Absolutely. Um, mm. And I also so sort of think,
0: I, I think yeah. with the, this sort of trend towards lower alcohols, I mean, Europe once again has always had lower alcohol wines, you know, you Burgundy and even Claret back in the day was twelve and a half. You know, 82 Lafitte's 12.5%. The 71 Grange was 12.8% alcohol. So this is kind of a trending thing. Is it a global warming thing? Well, that's another story for another day in a very long program. But, you know, having lived in places like Sweden and where there's a monopoly government-owned bottle shop called Systembolaget, and they were trying to stop people from drinking. So that's where these <coughs> de alcoholized wines came in, right? So when yeah. I left Sweden in 2017... Um, incidentally, my last night of Sweden was watching Radiohead live at Globin <laughs> and they did play Paranoid Android, of course, and we did rock out, but look, there were 62 different non-alcoholic <laughs> wines, or de-alcoholised wines on the shelf at Systembolaget Now, I've got the – I work at Alphington Dance, of course, the head office, and we're a, a bit of an experimental store with stuff like that. So I've got three bays, full bays of de wines, two full bays of de spirits, and then all the premixes all and, and beers and whatnot as well. Now, we know from a technical point of view, once you spin the alcohol out of the wine, you're left with a lot of acid and not a lot of mouthfeel. So you put the unfermented grape juice back in so people go, oh, it's sweet too. But we're getting better at it. Uh, I don't know – if it's ever going to be a substitute for wine per se, but it's like, let's just think of it as another beverage and and drink lighter styles of wine to, to get people into it.
2: Um, I've got a bit of an interesting one for you. Um, so, you know, St. Hallett, so famous, especially for their Shiraz, and they've actually now stopped, you know, producing white wines so and they're really just focusing on the Shiraz. They've actually, um, Helen McCarthy, the senior winemaker there now, she's brought out a... Um, a Shiraz Nouveau, which is, so there's there's no oak, it's yep. a to drink now Yes, uh, wine. Have you have you tried that yet?
0: No, we did a tasting with her recently, but that was the higher earth and all the classics and all stuff. But that's, oh, that's Shiraz Nouveau, that sort of style, that's exactly what I can absolutely bang out to customers because they, they want. You can stick it in the fridge for 15, 20 minutes, right? So one of the mm. great wines in the store for sort of picnics and stuff is called Not Your Grandma's Red. And it's, it's yes. the boys, the Chaffee brothers, you know, the boys, good, good fun to party with in Düsseldorf, but also make pretty good wines. So these guys have a Grenache Muvad from Old Vines in the Barossa that sits in the fridge. And when it's at the correct temperature, the label changes colour. It's like a hyper-colour T-shirt, mm. so yeah, <laughs> right. which is very 90s. Uh, but, you know, people want that. They want to go up to the fridge they want to pull out a 20-buck wine that's red. And, and have something that's really fun and interesting. So Shiraz Nouveau style, I see a huge kind of surge in that sort of thing because back in the day, you, you know, your you $10 Australian red with the oak chips in it or the staves or whatever, I, I, I think that, that is a generational change and, and I think we need to see more of those fresher, lower alcohol, fun styles to drink. But that's only my opinion.
1: Mm.